good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guests today are novelists Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray, authors of The Personal Librarian, a historical novel about the woman who built what is now the Pierpont Morgan Library and Museum in New York City. Marie, Victoria, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So, Marie, I want to start with you quickly. You've written um, a number of historical novels about figures who are maybe not quite as well known to the general public, at least not before your novels came out. Um, how do you sort of find the next person and how did you find Belle? Wow. I, I say sometimes that like they find me, although that, that's kind of amorphous. I, I do feel like in this situation, Belle found me and then she's been like standing in the corner and patiently tapping her foot, waiting for me to find Victoria. Um, but in truth, I actually first heard of Belle a long time ago. I, I don't want to age myself, but it was while I was still practicing as a New York City lawyer um, over two decades ago. I didn't say that out loud, but um, I practiced for a long time and I knew it wasn't what I was meant to be doing. And um, I would kind of sneak out to the different cultural institutions in New York City, the Met, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Morgan Library were two of my favorites. And I would just kind of go there and, and think about a different life. Did I want to go back and get a PhD? All sorts of things. And um, one day when I was there during one of my visits, a docent just happened to mention Bell to me. She said that, you know, basically that JP Morgan hadn't built this um, collection institution by himself, that he had this woman who was at his side, um, you know, during the pivotal time period. And, you know, she just always kind of stayed with me at that point. I wasn't even writing yet. I mean, I was writing, but very secretly, you know, not telling anyone. And then I wrote a lot of different kinds of books before I kind of came to this as to this calling, which is really what I feel like I'm called to do. Um, but Belle stayed with me that whole time. And I dipped into the research about her over time um, and more and more became available. You know, what I learned about her from the docent was that a woman at a time period when women couldn't even vote, didn't have the right to vote, was running this major institution and was this force in, in the art world and a celebrity. Um, but as time went on, I learned more about her background, that her father was Richard T. Greener, you know, the the during his time famous advocate for equality, first black graduate of Harvard, and that her mother had this really rich, incredible background um, from this community, free community of color in Washington, DC. And the one I learned that I knew I needed and wanted to have a partner write this book with me. Um, and then I feel like that's when Belle really started to tap her foot and she was like, hello, go find Victoria. <laughs> and um, it was, you know, not too long thereafter that I read Victoria's book, um, Stand Your Ground, which yeah. is a, be a beautiful, brutal, you know, combination, wonderfully written book about a really terrible epidemic in our country. Um, and I don't mean COVID, um, the shooting of young black men. And she told that story from the perspective of the women 
which um, really captured my attention and told the story from the perspective of two different, um, you know, a, a black mother and a white wife. So I reached out through our agents to see if she would have any interest. And then dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so um, Victoria, this book, I mean, Bell is, it's just an incredible story because as you said, you, first, it's a great story because somebody built a library. Second, because it was a woman in that time period. And then third, because it turns out she was a woman of color. It's a book that deals with race a lot more directly than your average rare book novel. Speaking of somebody who's read and written a number of those, yeah. um, you know, Belle is, is passing for white. Her father's a civil rights activist. Mm -hmm. What do you think the, the personal librarian and the, the stories from this time period, we're talking about the early 20th century, have to say about race relations that remains relevant in 2021? That's one of the things that Marie and I always say that it's a timeless book and it's also very timely. We ended up, even though we had written our first draft um, before COVID, when we got our edits back, when we had to really roll up our sleeves and get into it, it was the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, the, so the pandemic had hit. And so we talked every day by Zoom. Thank God for Zoom. <laughs> and we worked through every uh, chapter. And we were already speaking about race because we knew that Belle's mother didn't do this because she wanted to be white. She did it because she wanted to be equal. Yeah. And so we wanted to, she was, she understood what was happening to race relations in this country. And then as we were doing the edits, we were experiencing all the things that Belle's mother was trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. Belle's mother knew she didn't want one of her children to end up with their neck on the wrong side of a cop's knee. Mm -hmm. She knew that's what she was fighting. And so Every day, here we were, a Black woman and a white woman having to talk about race, not only race as it pertained to 100 years ago, but race as it was unfolding around us. And all of those emotions, we had hours of conversation that many people would say it had nothing to do with the book, uh, because we were talking about our personal experiences, but found those words and those emotions and those feelings found their way onto the pages of the book. Yeah, yeah. So Belle has a, a different experience. She goes to London at one point in the book and she has a different experience um, with respect to race than, than what she expected. Can, can you talk a little bit about how the attitudes at that time differed in the United States and the UK, which let's face it, has also had its own struggles with, with racial issues. Do you want? Yeah, you want to take that, Marie? Um, well, you know, England had abolished slavery um, decades before the United States yeah. had. But that, of course, that doesn't mean that the vestiges of slavery weren't still very present or that, um, gosh, the attitudes, the beliefs, the prejudice weren't, weren't there. But what was happening, but it had been enough time that it had softened a little bit and um, they didn't have the sort of rise of Jim Crow laws and segregation that was that was starting to happen in full force in America during the time period when Bell went to London. And sort of layered on top of that was the fact that, you know, England is so close to, to the continent of Europe. There were people there, an influx of people there from 
all over the continent. Um, Mediterranean people, you know, people who maybe looked a little bit more like Belle. And so I think when she was there, she didn't feel, and when I say she didn't feel, this is like, this is Victorianized Belle. We we talk about her like she's a character or person in the room with us. So when we're talking about that, you know, we're talking about our fictional Belle, right? The Belle that we kind of conjured from the research and our conversations. And so our Belle, we imagine kind of giving that, given that historical context might have felt freer, might have felt less um, less concerned, less w- walking that tightrope that she felt in the United States. It was, um, we imagined, it was li- a little bit liberating for her. And then when she later, of course, this is uh, on her second trip, when she went to um, Italy, she might have felt it even more because there she looked so much more like the people around her. She did, you know, she claimed a Portuguese heritage, which she didn't have, but she did look like that, um, or at least we imagined that she did. And um, that that kind of made her feel less like um, the outsider who was about to be exposed and walking that very dangerous tightrope that she did in the United States. So did you, are there photographs of her? Were you able to see oh, you know, yes. visual representations? And yeah. yeah. Oh yes. And what's so interesting about the photographs is that um, if I post a picture of her to my followers on social media, all of my followers, like that a hundred percent will say, how did she pass? Uh, Because even in the early 20th century, black people knew black people, black people understood what had happened um, just, just decades before in slavery. Whereas in the beginning of the 20th century, we weren't talking about mixed race or biracial. Um, those were, so we're looking at her with 21st century eyes. Um, and everybody on in social media who follows me says, that looks like my grandmother. That looks like my cousin, Susie. That looks like my sister, Anne. Right. There are lots of pictures of her, lots of pictures. Yeah, lots of pictures. Um, and she was also the subject of a lot of portraits by famous artists, too. Like Matisse did a portrait of her as well. Sure. So, you know, those are not like those clear cut representations, but it just gives you a sense of how she permeated really the, the cultural context of that time period, both artistic and sort of the social realm as well. Yeah. So I think it's all very well to find an interesting historical figure and say, oh, this person looks fascinating. Let, let me write a novel about her. But, you know, a Wikipedia page or even a full length biography um, is a very different thing from a novel and a novel. And in this novel is no exception. We, we create scenes. We create dialogues. We, we take moments in time and dramatize them over, you know, many pages. A, a, sort of a two part question. How do you how did you decide what the scenes were going to be mm-hmm. from this incredible life? And then how do you take a, a kernel of historical fact and make that into a scene with dialogue that takes up five or ten or fifteen pages? Okay, but you want to take the first part and then I'll take the second part and how we do um, it. Oh yeah, filling in that sort of the yeah. fact fiction, which you probably know, Charlie, because you you write this, mm-hmm. this genre sure, yeah. and have, have done this exact thing. Um I I often describe it this way. I don't know if this, this makes sense, but it's just the way I think about it in my mind's eye. Um, I, you know, that deep research, the, I'm looking at my desk cause I've got like 10,000 books over here <laughs> that, you know, the original source material, the letters, the journals, the, 
anything you can get your hand on day books right um and then the secondary materials about the character and then layered on top of that of course is like the macro research the the social political cultural big things that are happening during the the, the key time periods of the character's life um and then the micro stuff the, the details um all that stuff kind of forms the architecture of the story um it forms um the foundation the ceiling the pillars but there's in those gaps where we might know an event that occurs on a particular day um you know one example that victoria and i use a lot is the day that um bell interviewed with jp morgan you know she had a relationship, a friendship, a mentor, mentee kind of relationship with Junius Morgan, his nephew, at the Princeton University Library, where she was a librarian. Um, and he arranged that interview because he thought she might be a good fit for his uncle's institution. We know the day it happened. We know from the historical account what the what the state of the city was, what was going on in the world, what the Morgan Library looked like, the state of construction. We know what his personality was purported to be like and hers. And we know she got the job and but there's like a lot that's happening in the ellipses there right the, yeah. the conversation the, you know that's the fiction that and, and as you said how do you envision those ellipses those shadows and i think that it's in those shadows that the really interesting stuff happens those are the places that a biographer can't go um, those are the places that there may not be a historical record to support you're not going to see a scholarly article or a historical tome about that interview. But that's the stuff that brings the characters to life. That's what brings the time period to life. And I think that's why in some ways people are attracted, even if there, there might be a, a wonderful biography and a novel, but in some ways the novel can reach people, make them connect with the, the character of the time period in a way sometimes that a biography or historical text can't. So, and then how do we do it, Victoria? How do we fill in those ellipses? Yeah, and we just did it. You, you actually did a good job of explaining it because we know the characters because we stay as close to fact as we can. So using the example that Marie just gave, we knew exactly who JP was and the kind of man he was and um, what he, how he thought about women and how he treated women at the time. And then we knew where Belle was. We knew um, she was this woman who was a bit timid at the time because of her mother, always hearing her mother's voice. And she really wanted this position. That's what we knew. So state, that's what we knew about them. And so based on that and based on their character and based on um, the things that we knew about them, then we were able to write the scene. So we imagine that JP would walk in and almost look at her as a piece of art, mm. almost look at her as, okay, do I want to purchase this? Mm. Do I want to take um, this as my possession? And we know that she would have stood steadfast with her mother's voice in her head saying, look straight ahead. If he asks about your color, you know, we know those things had to, or we imagine, because yep. this is our bell. Um, and so we imagine those things had to be on her mind. So actually, especially because Marie and I had a chance to talk about every single scene, it wasn't as, dif as difficult as a lot of people would think. Because we had a partner that we spoke exactly. we, we I mean, I, I was just going to say that, Victoria, that like, and, you know, mo all my other books I've written by myself. So to have this experience where Victoria and I, you know, as we're imagining what's happening, 
we're talking it out. We're, we're you, we're doing the dialogue, not like, okay, you be JP Morgan. And <laughs> no, it wasn't like that for him, but you know, you're kind of talking out like, well, what would she say? And he said that, what would she said? And as we're, as those conversations are like the gold, right. You know, in those, as we're having those conversations, uh, you know, I'm frantically writing notes because a lot mm-hmm. of the things we're saying to each other or imagining that they're saying as we're talking out become the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Me, that's that's sort of the fun of the historical novel is that <laughs> is is taking the historical record and like you say, being able to use your imagination to fill in the ellipses. I I'd love hearing you talk about working together. I'm having sort of my first experience with that because we're I'm doing a a theatrical adaptation of of my early. 20th century New York novel, and we're working with a group of actors and a director, and we're sort of developing a script. And I've kind of never written in a group before, and so I can I can relate to how much fun that is. Yeah. Um, it is fun. It is, and, so, and it's so very moving. Talking about early 20th century New York, um, you know, I've I've researched that period for my novel, Escaping Dreamland, mm-hmm. and I wonder, you know, you you we've talked some about the research, the the original materials that you use. Uh, but how about how did you sort of research the sort of the the culture, the technology, the fashion? I mean, there is such a rich background in this novel that sort of roots us in that time period. What what sort of sources did you find most useful for just understanding the world of New York City in the first ten or fifteen years of the twentieth century? Oh, wow. well, and I think we we used her bio a lot because we both read the bio all the way through. But then when it came to building what New York looked like, we did that almost separately. It's almost like you didn't know what you needed to know until you got to the part that you were writing. So that's when we really got into the fashion. It wasn't something that we started before we started writing the novel. But if she was going to go to a ball, who would be there? What would they be wearing? What was she going to wear to that first interview with um, J.P. Morgan, and we decided that there had to be almost a, a costume arc, the way there's a character arc in the story. So those kinds of things we started looking at almost separately. As we were writing the story, we found out the needs. We found out um, we needed to know, uh, even down to the food, the kind of food yeah. that they would yeah. eat, or um, what did the carriages look like? What did the streets look like? So. Um, I think when we got to those scenes, that's when we knew we had to dig more research, you know, find more information to thicken the story and to layer it so that people really felt like they were in the early 20th century New York. Right, Marie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and Victoria, you said it perfectly. It's like, you don't know what you don't know until you're, you need it, right? Like you're in the scene. And suddenly you are, what, what is the attire? What are the maids going to wear? What are, what are the people, what kind of shoes do they have? What, what's the drink at the time? You know, and that's, that's when you have to go down the rabbit hole separately for each of those little silos of information, but the bigger, broader research can, can give you the the big pictures. Like, for example, we have a, a scene, a chapter in the book where we talk about the red party where everything's red. Yeah. And, and that actually comes from a letter that, Bernard Berenson's wife wrote to a friend. Um, uh, we've been looking at hit, you know, cause you don't just research your main character's life. You got to research everybody's life, you know? So Bernard had to be researched separately. And so did Richard T. Greener and obviously JP Morgan and, and then some of the other minor characters. And 
it was actually in some biographical material of uh, Bernard Berenson's that there was an excerpt from a letter of his wife talking about these over-the-top Americans and their their red party where every bit of food was dyed red. So something like that can give you a, a, a whole, you know, you read that and then suddenly a whole scene opens up yeah. before your yeah. eyes. And, yeah. you know, so it, it's it's not a science. You, I mean, you know, yeah. that's probably better than, than most, Charlie. You can have a process, and I do have a, this, pretty much the same process for all my books in terms of getting into the time period and digging into the character. And yet, there are these little nuggets you're going to find along the way that are going to create entire opportunities for you that you couldn't have scripted at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just like you don't know what you're going to need until you need it. And and of course, we had the Morgan Library as a research. <laughs> font for us which was which was incredible no it's true i mean i found that some of my favorite moments in for instance in escaping dreamland my, my new york novel were ones that were completely unplanned and you find something in the research and you're like i never would have had the courage to to make that up but <laughs> right. it's real so i can use it yes know? some it's you know that's uh you know the courage as you said like victorian eyes we were researching and learned about things that we definitely wouldn't put in there unless we had read about it in the record, like open marriages and Boston marriages, you know, yeah, yeah. those were things that happened to our characters, to people that we knew. And I've had so many readers be like, oh my gosh, this is the early 90s. We think about them as being so puritanical. And yet, yet. Not at well, all. it's Not funny. At all. I, I was actually reading your book at the same time that I was, my audio book at the time was um, the queer history of the United States. And so mm -hmm. those, there was a, there was a real junction there when you started mm -hmm. talking about Boston marriages and things. So talking about, you know, how, how we find all these things to put into the novel. Um, I've always thought that one of the real challenges of writing a historical novel is figuring out what to leave out because there's any one life there's more than you can put in in 300 pages and you and you want to avoid just being sort of a morass of of historical detail yeah. a novel that just shows off how much research you did um so how how do you decide what to leave out were there things that it was that it was painful to leave out um you know how, how did that process work for you well, the thing is, is that you have, like with any book, you have to decide where you're going to get in and where you're going to get out yeah. um, so that you're not just writing a biography, <laughs> you know, so, and where is the meat of the story? And so Marie had pretty much had that figured out, especially where we were going to start um, and, and where we were going to end. But, but as we were writing, there were so many other things we actually put in like we had this entire storyline um with some of our best lines too i yeah. hate when you got to throw out good stuff yeah but um bell was never able to become a mother um we believe because she would have been concerned about what the child would look like mm -hmm. and um she was fighting at every with everything in her to keep who she was a secret to hide it and so but her younger sister did have a child from her younger sister's first marriage. Her husband uh, died in World War I. And when her sister went to remarry, it, Belle and Belle's mother ended up raising Teddy's son. And so we really wanted to explore that because that gave Belle the chance to be a mother um, that she didn't have on her own because she ended up raising him. 
Um, and we really wanted to explore it. Did she was she good at it? Because she would want it, but but really the Morgan Library was her baby. So that was something to really explore. But it took us too far off the beaten path. Um, and so even though it was in our first draft, we had we ended up nixing it because we would have had to tell too much more of someone else's story. And so you just kind of know, you know, when I teach writing classes, I tell people stay on the New Jersey turnpike. Don't (laughs) get off at all the different exits. You know, there's lots of exits to get off. But if you're trying to go to all the way to New York, stay on the New Jersey turnpike. Don't get off. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to to think of it. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things also is a, a life, Unlike a novel, a life doesn't necessarily have a nice, perfect character arc. Um, this this nice structure, this story, all the things that we expect from a novel don't necessarily come in our lives. I mean, I remember a, a writing teacher saying to me one time, you know, if you have a happy childhood and a and a wonderful relationship and a career that you love and you retire and travel and you die at a ripe old age, that's a great life, but it's not a very good novel. You know? Know. Um, so, so how do you... Know. How do you take something that is by its nature not a novel and and give it, you know, take that that block of stone and and carve it into something that is that fits in this sort of artistic uh, structure that we're expecting? Um, gosh, that's such a good question and a hard question. Um, and I think, you know, if you think about a block of stone and you're chipping away to get, you know, to get to it, you have to know what it is you're trying to carve, right? Uh-huh. And I think um, from the beginning, when we started out telling Belle's story, you know, she had, I mean, we basically stopped the book in 1924, but she led the Morgan Library, you know, for another 25 years after that, you know, and we sort of fast forward to the end in the epilogue. So there's so much she does during that time period that that we had to leave behind because the arc of our story was was about, ultimately the decision that she made to pass and um, what society asked of her, demanded of her, forced her to sacrifice to live as equal and exercise her talents during this time period. Um, And not that there weren't sacrifices from 1924 to 1950 when she died, I'm sure there were, but we kind of felt like the the bulk of those sacrifices were happening during that time period. She's making, first of all, she's following along with her mother's decision for them to pass, right? Which is one thing. Um, She's walking the tightrope. That's another. She's falling in love and thinking about family and having to sacrifice that. She's having to leave behind contact with the really the only family she's ever known, which is her mother's family, the Fleet family, family in DC. She's making all of those sacrifices for this one goal, which is the only thing deemed worthy of the sacrifice, which is the legacy of the of the public Morgan Library. So when you start to look at the story with that arc in mind, it becomes easier to chisel away things. But there's always things that you're fighting to include, like Victoria just said about Teddy and the baby. And but when you really think about the arc of her life, the story of her being a mother isn't in that arc. The arc is the decision, the sacrifice, the hardships, and the legacy, right? And so when you start to really carefully frame the story that way, it becomes a little bit easier. And I think because Victoria and I had this kind of almost two-stage process in writing this book, that sort of first stage where we're working by 
phone and email and going back and forth and thinking we know what the story's about, which is the part of the story that had Teddy in it. Um, And then when we get the edits and suddenly we're just like this face to face every day, social unrest is unfolding around us. History is coming forward. It became clearer what, what the real issues in the story were. And it became easier, although painful, to cut away that story about Belle and Teddy and her nephew, Bobby. So, but it, it's hard. There's always yeah. things that you have to leave on the floor that you, you'd really rather not. Yeah. You talked about her legacy. So let's, let's talk about this legacy. I mean, she built this amazing library, one of the great um, private institutions, although it's open to the public, but it's not, okay. a, not a public library uh, in the world, really. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and um, as, as a lifelong book collector myself uh, and one time antiquarian book dealer, oh, uh, that's so I, cool. I very much enjoy writing about writing and reading about the world of rare books. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, because you do such a good job of writing, you know, the auctions and sort of the behind the scenes dealings with, with, with collectors and with dealers. Um, talk about what it was like for you to sort of discover that, that world of rare books and, and what surprised you about that world? That was definitely Marie's part. <laughs> that's my, that's one of my loves. You know, I wrote a book in a different lifetime um, called Bridget of Kildare, which is about a book that was the precursor for the book of, uh, book of Kells. It was yeah, the book yeah. of Kildare. Um, so I have long loved, um, handwritten illuminated manuscripts. And I've then subsequently fell in love with the history of the printed word, which of course is what the Morgan library is a monument to. It's a monument to the history of the printed word, starting with the Gutenberg Bible and the Caxtons and, yeah. you know, all the way through the English word in particular, but obviously other languages, um, so I have always loved that stuff. Now, sometimes when I would bring up my love of these topics to other people, their eyes would glaze <laughs> over. So I know that it isn't something that is always, people aren't always in love with. But um, people, what I thought was fascinating in this time period was to show not just that he was building this collection and what that collection meant to the public and to Bell and to JP, but how Bell was so innovative in making it happen as the only woman in the room. And and the drama, of course, isn't just sitting around in the midst of your collection, looking at all your books, which would be a super boring scene, but the drama is in acquiring it. And I, you know, we knew from the record that Bell had engaged in some really unique tactics in getting that collection together, which is even more surprising because she was a woman, you know, you would think that, you know, she would be trying to demurely make it happen, but, Heck no, Bell was going to be bold and she was going to make, get, get these, fill in the gaps in this collection and make it a uniform whole capable of rivaling, rivaling European institutions by hook or by crook. Right. And so she was, you know, doing behind the scenes negotiating. She's putting, she's timing herself in the actual auctions. And that was where we could make the drama happen and, and really show the reader, not just how innovative and bold Bell was, but also in the reaction of the newspaper, the audience, or or J.P. Morgan, just how momentous this collection really was. Yeah. If there's any readers out there who need extra explanation about why the subplot about her going after the Caxton is such a big deal, just give me a call. I can explain it yeah. to you. Because <laughs> I just love that. Um, and, you know, I, also, I, I, I mean, thought about my own my own life as a collector and and mentors in the collecting world that I had when I was young 
who who sort of taught me that that you can't just wait for the catalog to show up on your doorstep you can't just wait for the auction there are times when you have to sort of take the bull by the horns and and be proactive and go after what you want and you know almost felt like bell originated that in a way i mean she as you said she was yeah. using types of of collecting that hadn't been done before and and, oh. and doing it very successfully Absolutely. I mean, she was stepping outside the bounds of what was acceptable at that time. I mean, people didn't do what she did at that time. And yet, in a way, people, um, they didn't know what to expect from a woman. And mm -hmm. so in a way, she could, I don't want to say she could get away with it. But I think they were so surprised that somebody was using these unorthodox techniques, and it was her. So they kind of didn't know what to do. Um, and then, of course, she had the might of JP Morgan behind her, which really validated anything, any of the sort of machinations she would get up to. But yeah, I think she was really an innovator in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about JP Morgan for a minute. Those of us who have visited or worked in the, the Morgan Library, and if you haven't visited the Morgan Library, um, mm -hmm. when when health matters allow you to, please, please do. Yeah. It's just an amazing uh, institution. And almost no matter what sort of uh, books might interest you, they, they will be on display there. Um, but you know, those of us who, who who've spent time there sort of automatically have an admiration for J.P. Morgan. His is the name that's over the door, you know. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we would have liked him if we had met him in person. Mm. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk about the way you portray his personality, how you how you learned about his personality, and sort of how he functions as a character in in this novel. Well, you know what's so funny? We, I have a little bit of a funny story about this because when Marie um, sent me the treatment to think about uh, writing this book with her or to consider writing this book with her, I didn't read it for about two months because a good part of it, well, the first part of it was about J.P. Morgan and I just was not interested um, with everything that I had learned about him or the little bit I had learned about him in school, he didn't seem like a very nice man, especially yeah. people who look like me. And so I just had no interest in him whatsoever. Luckily, I got to the second page of Marie's treatment and called my agent and said, I'm sorry I took so long. Tell her I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but what was so interesting about that, that's why I think reading is fundamental. Because what was so interesting about that is that I had this vision and view of J.P. Morgan that was one dimensional. Mm -hmm. um, and so because we were going to be writing about him, I had to dig deeper into who he was. And he was a man with feelings. I mean, I didn't like the way he was a womanizer and, mm -hmm. and how he treated his wife and how he even treated Belle in some times where she was in charge of all of his mistresses yeah. and one could be in his office and one could be in a library and another one was going to be coming through the front door into the rotunda. So I didn't like all of those things, but he was a complicated man who gave a young woman a chance. Mm -hmm. And then not only did he give her a chance and that, and that's a fact, but he mentored her and, mm -hmm. and helped to raise her. I'm saying that in quotes, um through through this um he guided her and so there were um he like everybody else in this world he was a complex human being who no one is all good and no one is all bad and i think the character of jp morgan 
personifies that more than anybody I think I've ever written in all the books I've written. Mm -hmm. um, that there were so many good parts to him and so many sweet parts, like when he would have Belle read to him. Mm -hmm. um, when we discovered that, I found that to be just so fascinating of this big, burly man um, with this booming voice would want a, woman, a little petite woman reading to him. And um, I enjoyed writing his parts because he was so complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, think I mean, he, um, he, like Victoria said, like he was such a mass of contradictions, you know? Yeah. He was this horrible philanderer and yet he was like the pillar of his church, you know? And yet in his mind, those two things weren't inconsistent. Um, and he, you know, and I think, to, you know, when you look back over time at, you know, I always like to look back and see what people's childhoods were like, what, you know, sort of the arc of their lives to see where they, how they got to where they were. And I think Bell intuitively understood that as well. And when you go back and kind of look at historically how his family, the Morgans, right, they'd been there for a long time, but they sort of inched up the hierarchical financial ladder bit by bit. And he had a, a very tough relationship with his father. And I think because of that, he almost didn't know how to interact sometimes, especially when it, it came to truly intimate emotional moments, right? Not the, the philandering moments and, and not the sort of burly, you know, moments with uh, the financial people or, or even his own children. Um, and yet there was something, you know, when we see JP Morgan in this book, these are in the last years of his life and something in him has softened and he, that side of himself, that sort of maybe more sensitive, more vulnerable side has started to emerge with Bell. And that is fascinating to write as well, to, to take a look at a man who wields such power. He can, you know, with a single negotiation can write a, an economic crisis in our country. Um, and yet at the same time, he's so dependent on her, so needy of her, her ministrations and her guidance and her attention. Um, it's, again, he's a, a mass of contradictions, not all good, not all bad, um, but he certainly gave Belle the opportunity of a lifetime. And for that, I have to be grateful. I really do, because there aren't many people who would have done that. Well, I think just, you know, for me, looking at this just as a novel, if we take, if we strip the history away, mm -hmm. he he serves this, They he and Belle are able to sort of reflect each mm -hmm. other. We see each of them in a way that we wouldn't if the other one wasn't there. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed seeing him in a, you know, as Victoria said, in a very different way from the way, the, the little that I knew about him, you know, I just thought rich guy, built a great library. You know, that was pretty mm -hmm. much what I knew. Mm -hmm. And when I found out, well, actually someone else built the library, that yeah. was that was the <laughs> first really interesting thing, you know, uh, in, in a fascinating book. And that he allowed someone else to do. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things um, that I tried to do in Escaping Dreamland that I always found to be a challenge was, and I've done this in, in other novels as well, is try to use the English language in the way that it was used at the time mm -hmm. that, my particular piece happens to be set. Um, for me, that meant reading a lot of old newspapers, books, having having a dictionary handy that allowed me to see when words came into use and what they yeah. meant at different yeah, times. Yeah, often do that. Um, yeah. Would you? Can you talk a little bit about how you know using the language of the time and how your writing style maybe varies depending on what what period you're writing in? 
Well, I'm going to start this off again. This was uh, (laughs) Marie's uh, strength, but I'll start this off because this was my first historical fiction. In fact, when Marie came to me, I didn't get it because I write contemporary fiction. I love reading historical fiction, but why was she coming to me? Um, I just could not figure that out. I didn't know why, you know, she hadn't um, told me that. So when we first started writing, um, I I just loved how Marie, the beauty of the language when we first started writing. But when we got to my sections, there were times when I wanted Bell to say to J.P. Morgan, come on, dude, just do what I said. <laughs> and so I would kind of like write something almost yeah. close to that. And then Marie would come in with her magical brush, mm-hmm. um, which was, that's what we began to call it, oh, just right. magical brush. And I then I learned from that. And now I kind of fancy myself an expert having <laughs> worked with one of the experts uh-huh. because as I'm reading other books, I've been texting Marie and saying, oh, they're missing the language. They're missing mm-hmm. the language. So uh, Marie, I'll turn that over to you that I, I got better than, come on, dude, what's up? Oh my gosh. <laughs> By the end, the brush didn't even have to come out most of the time, but it was funny. I mean, we had so many laughs over oh. <laughs> over that. And, you know, I, what was important, I think in those sections is that I knew what we were trying to say. It was just about, it was almost like a a slight conversion sometimes, but I think, you know, you, you know, what you raised about the language, about the origin of phrases. I mean, that's something I'm constantly doing, you know, I'll use a phrase that I think maybe isn't too modern, but when I look it up, it actually originated in the 1940s and I can't, it can't get anywhere close to it. Um, you know, you try and avoid the clearly modern slangish words, but then you have to find what was the slang of the time. Um, you know, depending on the time period that I'm writing in, I'll often read um, novels from that time period. So, you know, right now I'm um, finishing up a book that is set in the 1930s. And so I'm reading novels that were written in the 1930s, not novels that were written about the 1930s, but that were written in that time period. But at the same time, I also don't try to overdo it. I think uh, we've all probably read historical fiction that was like too heavy handed in trying to sound historical. And, and you lose, not only do you lose the audience, but it seems false because we don't, unless you have like a, a film reel, like we will have of our time, um, you don't always know exactly how people spoke to one another. But one thing that is helpful with Bell in this time period, I think, is the letters. Now, of course, we don't always write the way we speak. Those two things can often be very different. But you can get a sense of certain words that somebody might use, a turn of phrase. You might get a sense of sentence structure that they might you know, be utilizing. So it's kind of putting all those things in the mix. But it's almost like, didn't um, Coco Chanel once said, put all, all the jewelry you're going to wear on and then take off a piece or two. It's kind of like that. Write the sentences. Make sure you don't have the anachronistic stuff. Make sure you don't have too modern stuff. Um, write the sentences you want and then pare it down a little bit. Because at the end of the day, people don't speak in hyperbole. You know, they just yeah. don't. Um, even in the early 1900s, they didn't talk that way. Um, so it's it's there's no formula for it, but it, it is it is an effort. It really is to, to make that language sound accessible, natural of the time period, and yet not too modern. 
But I think it's so important because it sets the tone for the uh, story and it pulls the reader back to the time. Yeah. And so um, Marie was a master at that. Yeah. I mean, I've always I've always felt that it's a it's a tightrope as, as sort of Marie got at it between being true to the time, but also you, you don't want to obscure yes. what you're trying to say for a for a reader in, in 2021. Uh, well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. They can all be answered in just a few words. And we get okay. to do 20 questions today because we have two, two authors <laughs> to answer the 10 questions. So, Victoria, I'm going to let you be the one who goes first, but we'll go back, back and forth through, through each question. Okay. Uh, and the first one is, what word do you love to work into your writing? I always have the word joy. In every book that I ever have written, I will always have the word joy. Um, because it's my favorite word. So see, now you've given away a secret because <laughs> I had written four novels and somebody came to one of my book signings and said, there's a word that you all that appears in all of your books. And I was shocked that somebody had figured that out. I had only written about four at the time, but I just think um, that's my favorite word in the English language. And I want everyone to be able to experience joy all the time okay. in their life. Marie? How, can I, how can I follow that? I mean, she has a word, a beautiful word that she works into every one of her books. And it, and one of my novels is titled Joy. Seriously, Victoria, I, I have nothing to say because I don't think I intentionally do that at all. And now I feel like I need to find my word. Well, okay. So well, why don't I give you the second question then, Marie, which okay. is what right. word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Oh, man. Mm, that's a tough one. Mm. Probably a word I say too much. Um, I say that that's fair. I hate yeah. to see it in there, but I do say it. So if you were to record my natural dialogue, you would see the word um way too often. Yep, yep. Um, Victoria, where is your favorite place to write? Oh. On the beach. Oh. Anywhere. If I can have, if there's water around me, I just came back from Martha's Vineyard and I spent half of my time just writing and looking out. We always get a house very, very close to the ocean. And that I love the beach. I um, I think I even said something about it on social media in the last couple of days. That's my happy place. Yeah. Um, I'm going to answer that in one word. Yeah. Ditto. Ditto. Okay. <laughs> um, totally ditto. Where could you never write? Oh, I know. Anywhere that my children are around and need something. I mean, there's just no possibility of it happening. Yeah. None. I can write anywhere. I I'm, I can't think of a place where I can't write because sometimes I will go out. There were people all around me at the beach. I'll go to write in Starbucks. Sometimes I need a little bit of the sound and the energy yeah. to block out so that I can go inside. Yeah. Um, to okay. what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I'm starting a sentence with and or but. Marie, do you have one? I, I'd say the same. And I know you're not supposed to use phrases, um, but I do. Sometimes I feel like the, a pointed phrase in the yeah. right spot is very, very powerful. I, I agree. I agree. Um, what was the first book you remember reading? B is for Betsy oh. by Carolyn Haywood. Oh. I love that book and I wish... I had found her before she passed away so that I could have told her how she influenced me. And she had a whole series. Um, and, then, and that's when I first learned how to make snow angels. Oh. <laughs> oh. 
How can I follow that one? Once again, <laughs> Victoria steals the thunder. Um, I, I don't remember a particular book that was the first one I read, but I have a very distinct memory when I was four and I was in kindergarten. I was a very, very young, precocious reader. I could read and before my parents didn't even realize I could read and I could read books, you know? And I remember distinctly, it was one of the first week of school and our teacher had become ill and they, they had no substitute for us. And they parked this whole room full of kindergarten kids in the library. And for, it was probably only five minutes, but we were left totally alone. And so I took the book that somebody was supposed to read to us. I crawled up on to the table and I started to read the book to the class because they were starting to get unruly. And, and so the teacher came in and I remember her standing there watching me read this book to the class. That's the first book I remember reading. Uh, before that, I don't remember. What a great story. Um, what are you reading now? Ooh. I am reading two books. I'm reading Seven Days in June. Um, by Tia Williams. And then I'm reading another book um, that has isn't published yet, um, Carolina Built. Yeah. That's also on my stack. Um, Victoria both and I are both reading that one. Um, what am I reading now? I, I feel like I'm reading six different books. I know. Um, I have also another book I'm reading for um, a blurb. I'm reading, um, I just finished Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love. Um, which I'm reading for research, but it's a novel. So that was fun. And I actually just finished listening to this book called Underground Airlines, which is an alternate history um, by Ben Winters, which imagines um, that the Civil War never happened. Mm. Ooh. It's very disturbing. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, what book would you like to have written? I can tell you easily. Um, I just okay. finished reading one of the best books I've ever read, Yellow Wife. And I every oh, yeah. time I read, I, I think about that book, I was like, why didn't I write that book? That's such a good book. Yeah. I love that book. I don't even know. I mean, I have so many books that like I just love myself that influenced me that brought me to write this kind of book. Probably one of those. Like I would love to have written um, A.S. By Its Possession. Yes, uh, that's, that's my, that's always my answer too. So is I, it really? I think wow. you're the second person in 87 episodes who has said possession. And Seriously, that's, that's yours. I, I mean, I, I think, like you said, I think it made me understand that I could write books about, about books, about writers that were set in two different time periods where yes. I got to make up literature yeah. all those kinds of things are just like that's so yeah. interesting because yeah. same for me that that book really opened up my eyes to the fact that you how you could use a passion for history mm -hmm. to write fiction yeah. and uh i don't i i feel like that was one of the first that really kind of did that yeah. in that way oh that's what, so interesting i've never had anybody say that <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will I just kind of feel like I can write anything. I still got a lot of time. Great. <laughs> you better. Um, I've been through some, I think I may have an interesting story um, in my own personal life with a lot of things that happened. My parents being um, part of the civil rights movement and the impact that had on me, but I would never write that story. Yeah. yeah. Never write about myself. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, there are certain things that same that have happened in my life that would make for a good memoir, but I am not right, writing yeah. that. Right, go there. <laughs> no and, way. And finally, uh, 
what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Oh, I love, you know, and we're getting this with the, the personal librarian and I've only gotten it one other time with, out of all the books I've written, I've only gotten it with Stand Your Ground and um, the personal librarian where people say, I learned so much. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that is such a compliment. Um, and the other thing I've only ever had happen once, but I would love for it to happen is um, somebody once read one of my books and said it changed the course of what she chose to do with her life as a, as a profession and career. Not that she necessarily wanted to do this, but it, it just kind of opened up kind of like possession did for me. It, yeah. it, yeah. it made, made her realize that certain things were possible, made her look at the world in a different way. And I would love, I mean, wow, for this book and the other books that Victoria and I write to change the way people talk about and think about race. Yeah. Gosh, that would be even the way better. it changed us because yeah. it did change us. It changed us. And we would, I would love for people to have that, those kind of relationships, those kind of conversations, that kind of experience, that, that would be the, the biggest gift of all. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guests today have been Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray, whose book, The Personal Librarian, is available wherever books are sold. Marie, Victoria, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank thanks you. for having us. It was a treat. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to novelist Wiley Cash about his new book, When Ghosts Come Home. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Mm -hmm.